I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. All right, gentlemen. We're doing a quiz today, right? No, no quiz. False. <laughs> you lose again, Jesse. Ding, oh ding, man, ding, ding. I'm so yeah, I'm so thankful we are not. What what are we doing today, guys? But we we are going to do a quiz one of these days, aren't we? That's right. I'm already anxious. I don't, <laughs> I, don't I don't know how to explain how anxious that makes me. Will this be released before you guys get here? Probably not. But anyway, you're coming here next week to do a live liturgy guys podcast at Benedictine College. Hey, remember remember when we did that event at Benedictine College? That was so much fun. <laughs> and I won the quiz. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of options for uh, the editors to, to deal with in this podcast. That is yeah. true. Pick your own adventure. So, Chris, yes. you are like podcast master this season six. Yeah. Because you're putting all of your knowledge of all of your decades of work as an office mm. of liturgy, worship office director. It's going to be a short season. <laughs> putting it suffer to work. The, suffer the wrath of the podcast master. Right. <laughs> Very Chicago of you. There's a guy who, during the midnight mass at, at Christmas, would say that. Suffer the wrath of the task master. And we were always waiting for that part of the reading. Oh, we yeah. were just itching for it. That's Pat and Patty's backpack shack right there for you. You guys are funny. Oh, thank you. You're funny too, Chris. The world needs to know how funny you are. But hey, we've been talking about Mass and celebrating it the way the church wants it to be celebrated. We've been talking about buildings, investments, and uh, ministers, and where are we today? Yeah. Well, we finally got ready to start Mass, and so there's in the Missal, there's a section that's called the Order of Mass. Right, it's right in the middle of the missile. What the missile is? What three thousand pages long? Yeah. What's it doing like in the middle? Why isn't it the beginning where you should find yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is how things roll in the liturgy, Dennis. Uh, mm-hmm. No, it's it's sort of a. If anybody's tried to, you know, muddle their way through a liturgy, of the hours book or a lectionary or something like that, they're all set up on this same pattern. So the beginning of each of these ritual books, liturgy, of the hours, missile, lectionary. Uh, begins with what's called the proper of the season or proper of time. And so that goes from Advent all the way to Christ the King. And that Uh. takes up the first, I don't know, quarter of every single book. And it's only once you get through that in the Missal or in the Liturgy of the Hours that you get through that, you get to the actual order of events. And so the order of Mass, it's like in the 500s where Mass actually begins. But that's where we are. So. Page 500. Yeah, yeah, page 500. Yeah. So it uh, it goes through the order of mass, and we are at paragraph number one. So again, we're still going to try to uh, see if we can't post this, because I think unless you're a priest or a deacon or maybe the server, most people have never actually opened the cover of a Roman Missal. And yeah. So uh, it's, uh, it's important to do. So that's what we're doing. We're going back to the book. We are trying to uh, understand it and talk about it. According to the mind of the Council Fathers, according to tradition, and according to the post-conciliar instructions, because uh, I think that that many places that think they're celebrating the liturgy according to the Second Vatican Council might not be, even the best intentions. So if you no. actually, we want to go back to see what the book actually says, 
Let's celebrate from there. You know, a few uh, months ago, actually, it was more like two years ago, I guess. Now, I was a guest on um, an awesome podcast, which if people don't know it. It's called The Cordial Catholic. And the guy used to be evangelical. Now he's Catholic and he's trying to make a bridge for evangelicals. And he said one of the weirdest things that was, was strange to him at the beginning at Mass was that the pastor didn't come out in the front and say, hey, everybody, glad to be here. You know, that the pastor came in the back door and processed in from the back, which, you know, as a Catholic, we're so used to that. Like, it doesn't surprise us. But that was an interesting thing to me to say, why would a guy come in the back and not say hi to you first? <laughs> and so... That's a good way to look at this. We have an introductory rite, and we think of the Mass as a rite by itself, but it's actually a rite composed of a number of smaller rites, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we're in the introductory rites, which is itself composed up of little minor rites, too. And so at number one, and we start on this uh, last time, where it says in the order of Mass, when the people are gathered, the priest approaches the altar with the ministers while the entrance chant is sung. And we mm -hmm. talked last time about what does it mean for the people to gather and sort of the disposition that they need to have and whatnot. So that was our topic last time. Well, this one we're is taking going... this sentence by sentence, right? Oh, well, this the first, <laughs> this one sentence is going to get three uh, different podcasts. So I don't know. There's a lot to say, but you know, I mean, the popes have said that. I mean, it's uh, there's there's a great wealth. The church's been working on this sentence you know, for 2,000 plus years. Yeah. And so there's a lot in there that we want to look at. And remember what David Fagerberg taught us, the name of his book, Theologia Prima, which means, anyone, anyone? Anyone, anyone? First theology. <laughs> yeah, our principle <laughs> of pri primary theology, a primary source in a sense, and uh, that the liturgy itself is a primary source about the nature of the liturgy. So you don't have to read encyclopedias about liturgy. You look at the liturgy. What are the words that are said and what are the instructions that are said to find out about the nature of mm -hmm. things? And that's why we're doing this sentence by sentence because yeah. there's a lot of stuff in that sentence and in each sentence and it means something. Yeah. Well, let's look at this part here about the priest approaching the altar with the ministers. Right. Yes. So that's uh, from the order of mass number one. But then I think we talked about this last time, too. There's what's called a general instruction of the Roman Missal. And that is kind of a complementary part of the Roman Missal that gives a little bit more information mm -hmm. uh, about what happens. And if you go to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, and again, many of the listeners out there, out there will have a general uh, have a Roman Missal. You can go look at this yourself. And again, this is a good idea. I mean, I think even the, the best intentioned pastors, I mean, they're not going back to look at the general instruction each year. I mean, it's a good thing to do, but of course, there's lots of good things to do. But if you were to open this up to number 120, this is exactly what it says. And I just want you to try to picture this in your mind's eye and any thoughts or questions or comments along the way, uh, fellas, you can bring up here. So at uh, 120, in the general instruction, it says, when the people are gathered, the priest and ministers wearing red, uh, wearing sacred vestments go in procession to the altar in this, this order. order. Uh, yeah. W w what about that word, in this order? That sounds rather prescriptive, right? This is what mm -hmm. you ought to do. Yeah, and yeah. if there's, there are not too many things like that in the instructions liturgically. There's a lot of options or may or should, but this one is pretty clear. Yeah. Well, think about what the liturgy is trying to do, is trying to reorder a disordered universe. And so it has instructions because this is, um, this. here's another Fagerbergism uh, that he would uh, say came from, I think, Aidan Kavanaugh, is that the liturgy does the world the way the world was meant to be done. Right. So you, um, the world is 
in chaos because of sin. But when you come to the liturgy, you you get a you get a taste, a foretaste of uh, the chaos undone. It's put back in order. And so you have the order of mass and the ministers go to the altar in this order because it's trying to demonstrate that uh, this is the way the world is meant to be. This 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 cosmetic, beautiful, uh, you know, act put back together. Dennis, because you're because you're a super taster, do you have mm-hmm. a greater foretaste of the heavenly liturgy? I do. You, <laughs> you don't even know what the Eucharist tastes like to me, Jesse. It tastes more like wheat and water than to me than anyone else that you know. But I would add to you, Chris, to what you said, which is brilliant as usual. Um, and it's not just reordering the world; it's reordering the world and bringing it to glory. Right. So when you talk about sacred vestments, as it says in the uh, General instruction: The priest putting on glory, putting on silk, putting on gold, putting on magnificence. You see this especially in the Eastern churches, where they're coming in as Christ resurrected at the right hand of the Father. What would Christ resurrected, transfigured garments look like? And that's another thing. It's not really contained in the content here, but the Im- implication is: sacred vestments are something, and they're reordering and glory, showing the glory of the future world in this world. Yeah. So who yeah. goes first? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Chris. Well, okay. Well, what it's well, you know, I, I was thinking about the vestments, Dennis. When you're talking, is really that that that's the sacramental principle behind every one of these things, whether it's vestments or words or music or day of the week or whatever it is, is that all of these things are supposed to sacramentalize and reveal Christ. And so, um, insofar as we do this well, Christ is revealed. But when we stop doing it well, I'm revealed. And we don't want that. We well, want Christ to be revealed. You're pretty good, Chris, but I'd take Christ well, over here. You have a good yeah. Jesus beard going on. Yeah. 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 It's like the only thing I have. And that's where the with. comparison stops. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, back to uh, number 120. So this is the order of procession. Number one, the thurifer carrying the smoking thurible if incense is being used. Mm-hmm. Okay. Comment? Well, I know Question. you've talked about this a lot with the Easter vigil and all of that stuff and the order of smoke and candle and pillars of cloud and pillars of light and all that stuff. But I would think just at one level, it means the uh, incense marks the presence of God or the presence of Christ and the minister, the prime minister, or the priest or the bishop is going to be coming in. And that's their, they come in in this cloud of incense, which is just like the bowls of incense around the throne of God. Am I, am I on the right track here, Chris? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, what do they call this? A hierophany or theophany that uh, things like smoke or clouds, you know, are symbols of the Holy Spirit and of God. And yeah, so it's here comes God. Uh, the first, uh, <laughs> you know, God is in the house. It's sort of like Jesse. You can smell him before you see him. <laughs> <laughs> They said that about Padre Pio. It was a very lovely, saintly smell. So you're just comparing me to Padre Pio, right? It's your aroma of sanctity, Jesse. Yeah. Okay. Good thoroughfare. But, okay, I mean, those of you listening out there, when was the last time you saw incense coming in at the head of the procession? And hopefully your answer is... I just saw it today. Hey, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, but I think a lot of places, unfortunately, they can go the whole year without having incense except maybe yeah. a funeral or something like that so that makes me incensed yeah that's true Jesse. That's and even then there might be incense but i don't always see it come in in the procession like they'll mm-hmm. have incense later but not it doesn't come in, in the procession mm-hmm. oh yeah they, it's like in this in the uh, sanctuary for a while mm-hmm. and then they go get it yeah mm-hmm. yeah 
So number two is uh, ministers who carry lighted candles and between them an acolyte or other minister with the cross. Yeah. So candles are next. Uh, in some of the reading I was doing, um, apparently the, the cross was not always a part of the entrance procession. It was like reserved to papal masses. I mean, you know, there's a couple thousand years of history you have to dig through to try to find this. But the candles are really the, the prominent symbol. And something else I discovered is that um, they, the experts say that the candles go first in the in the they're accompanying they're leading the way they're uh, lighting the way for the cross and so the cross is actually a little bit behind each of the uh the candles or uh. somebody calls them the lucifers the the light bearers the candles mm -hmm. that uh, that come along the way right okay. all right so there's uh, the first four ministers after after that we have acolytes and remember we had a um podcast on the instituted ministry of acolyte Okay. But this is probably not, unless you're at a seminary, Jesse, you know, you're probably not going to see instituted acolytes in your procession. So you have that, you have other ministers. Go ahead. Well, if, do they, are they in any particular order? Does acolytes come ahead of other ministers or it's just saying they're all in a clump? Well, they, uh, no. So you would have the other servers. So the acolytes would be serving at uh, in the sanctuary. Does anybody else come in? Does, does a cantor process in? Does a... Commentator procession. Lector. No, that's a good question. No, it does, um, lectors can be in the entrance procession. I think it says in another part of the general instruction, but I don't think your cantors and psalmists and sacristans. Some places put extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion in there, but uh, the, the general instruction at least doesn't uh, indicate that. Right. And it doesn't mention the deacon. Tell. It doesn't mention the deacon. It's a, it's a section called Mass Without a Deacon, interestingly. Yeah. And which, you know, we were talking about this before we, uh, before Jesse hit uh, the record button. Uh, why? Oh, I should do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's a number of forms of masses that the general instruction gives. And the first one is this one called Mass Without a Deacon. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I have some. I wonder if that's a holdover from the old high mass, low mass distinction when you had mass, high mass, you had to have a deacon, right? And a subdeacon. And then low mass, you didn't. And maybe they're distinguishing now between uh, something like that. You could have a dialogue mass or a misa cantata, and it's just kind of mm -hmm. coming in the genetics of the of the general instruction. Is that right? What do you think? Maybe. I. This has always been a, a I don't know. It, it seems like the most normative celebration would be mass with a deacon because that's the fullest form and kind of the normal form, just like the sung mass or probably the solemn mass was the normative form. And uh, the recited or um, a red mass was kind of a derivative of that. So I've always thought that uh, the first form that they would give would be mass with a deacon, but they don't. It's mass without a deacon. So maybe that's just reflecting probably the reality in most places. Okay. I don't know, church going all practical all of a sudden here in these uh, liturgical celebrations. But if there so, is a deacon, where does the deacon go? He comes right before the priest and he carries the uh, book of the Gospels. Or if the, the there's no deacon, then the reader carries uh, the book of the Gospels, uh, slightly elevated, but doesn't carry the uh, lectionary. Yeah. What's wrong with the lectionary? Why why the book of the Gospels and not the lectionary? Lectionary is mm. scripture too, isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah. This, well, it's a good question. What's your answer? What's the answer? I guess you can't carry both. And if you had to pick one, you pick the Gospels. Right? Makes sense yeah. to me, right? Yeah. I think there is something. Um, I suppose, remember we talked about missiles before, and they're, they're kind of a, a combination of 
separate books. You'd have a lectionary and Evangelium, I think it would be called, the Book of the Gospels, and Antiphonale or something like that. Uh, you'd have an Ordo for the MC and stuff. And now they all got put together in one full Roman Missal. But I think there's, uh, traditionally, I think there was something independent about the Book of the Gospels, and especially something sacramental about it, that, um, you know, that when the gospel is read, the church says that it is the very words, it's Christ himself who's talking to you. And so I think it merits its own book. It merits it get, its own, It gets incensed, too. It does get incensed. Right. It gets kissed. Uh, the bishop will bless people with a book, just like he would a monstrance with a blessed sacrament. Mm -hmm. He'll take the book of the Gospels, but not a lectionary. And isn't there a little a prayer that says, by the words of the gospel, may my sins be forgiven? Don't mm -hmm. they say that somewhere? So the presence of Christ seems to be important in the book of the Gospels and less so in the other ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's read from uh, a furnishing that's as important, the ambo, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I yeah, suppose the lectionary is too. Yeah. yeah. Well, you stand to hear the gospel, but you sit to hear the other readings, things like that. Yeah. Sacred minister reads the gospel. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so in in so many ways, there's these little sacramental indications. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming in the door. Yeah. So, but anyway, so but the reader can bring in the book of the gospels if there's no deacon. So that's that's a question actually that comes into the office sometimes. Can the reader carry in the book of the gospels? So, and it says yes. It says yes. Okay. And even though this is, um, we ran a piece in the Adoramus, 25 part series on uh, um, the traditional, um, according, uh, traditional gestures of the Roman Rite. And this Monsignor uh, Mark Karen talked about how you would carry in the book of the Gospels, right? So you're not like waving it around. Uh, there's a certain traditional way where you you carry it by one hand. I think it's the right hand on the spine on the upper part and the left hand on the lower oh, part. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Okay, That's just not weird, you know, affectation that a particular deacon might have. This is this is the, the tradition. And you think, well, what, isn't that just getting a little bit too fussy? But you think, well, you're, you're carrying... Uh, a tangible word, right? That what's what's in this book and within these words is the logos of the Trinity, and so it uh, kind of demands a certain expression that um, you know that that others don't. You know, here's way back in my uh, uh, liturgical institute days when I was a student in the class called uh, it was called Sacramentals, Blessings, and Devotions. I, I think it's what it was called still yeah. then. Which you teach now? Which I teach now. But at that time, it was. Um, what was his name, Dennis? He used to work for ISIL. He was uh, English. Was Bruce, Bruce Harbert. Bruce Harbert. That's right. So he came into class one day and everybody had a stack of books. And he looked at one student because he had in his stack of books a Bible, but there were other books on top of it. And he just kind of looked at him with a, you know, good, kind of good nature. He was a very funny guy. Just a little bit of, uh, you know derision and you know, scandal. I said, why would you put something on top of your Bible? You know, in a stack of books, if the Bible is one of them, the Bible is always on top. You know, mm. I never do that, but but it's the same sort of principle. I mean, the, these books that contain But what if the Bible is the foundation of these those other books? Mm. Uh, it's, yeah, it's also uh -huh. the pinnacle. <laughs> this is all how you look at it. Yeah. Uh, but it's the same sort of thing, you know, how it is that you carry in uh, carry in the book. So, uh, and then finally is uh, the priest himself. So again, I mean, just go back to the books and picture this in your mind's eye. Imagine it's a solemnity or a Sunday 
at your regular mass. This isn't, you know, like a weirdo high mass. I mean, this is the normative form of a Sunday celebration. Incense, candles, cross, other ministers, readers, deacon, priest. Is this what you see when you go to Sunday mass? Most people probably don't. Yeah, yeah. And there's probably I've, a variety. Of, go ahead, Jesse. Uh, I just have, a, I mean, I just have a question, and maybe this is, maybe we should have started with this. But what does it, what does it even mean to have a procession? Like, why do we, why do we? Because there's a lot of processions in the liturgy, right? What is that? What does that mean? That act of processing down the aisle actually mean, as opposed to just starting the mass? Saying, hey, you know, we're starting. That's a great question. I mean, it reminds me how Dennis began this as well. I mean, why do you go from <laughs> Right. So if you're in if you're in our little church, you've got to go outside uh, the sacristy door uh, to go up the out, the the long side of the church building, then to get to the back. Or you've got to come in through the sanctuary and then cut up around the side or something like it. Why? This is entirely impractical. So what's well, the reason? Well, I mean, you you have these phrases in the liturgy of the hours, you know, from the Scriptures about lift higher ancient doors, uh, let the king of glory come in. There's the great Echechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechechech
why don't we wrap up this part about the procession? All right, so you have a picture in your mind's eye of what you should imagine, what you should see next Sunday coming down the, the center aisle. So maybe in the next one, we can talk about what you might hear uh, at the same time as that procession approaches the altar. Okay. Why would you go down the center aisle? Why don't, why don't you go down the side aisle? Yeah, because it's all about reordering rather than disordering. Isn't it amazing we can make a 25-minute podcast out of uh, one paragraph of the general <laughs> instructions? One, one sentence. Right. One it sentence. just shows you the content is there. I mean, we're not we're glossing on it, but we couldn't gloss on it if it if it weren't there. Well, and there's one way to, you know, we're trying to, to, to mine some of the theological content and substance out of this, you know, through the details. But, um, you know, if you've ever been like an Episcopal MC, I mean, you do actually talk about, you know, who's going to go first. You know, you have Knights of Columbus all of a sudden. You have Knights and Ladies of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. And you've got, uh, you know, 30 seminarians and you've got 20 deacons and you have concelebrants and you have deans and you have all sorts of things. And it, it is really quite a, a feat to, uh, to, to get the whole thing moving. Once, especially, you have this, once you have the structure, then it can inform those decisions, right? I mean, that's what this whole thing is about, you know, because they're not going to give you instructions on every single one of those possibilities and opportunities. But when you know, you know, the ministers of the sacrament are last, you know, and that there's a specific hierarchy, it helps inform all of those decisions. Mm-hmm. And yeah. clarifies the structure of the mystical body. Well, yep. Okay. All right. I can't wait to talk about what we hear because the entrance chant, man gets me going. I can't wait for you guys to answer a liturgy question, so neither let's do that. can I. <laughs> let's get going. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, we have another liturgy question this week. Yes. Who's it from? This uh, question is from Charlotte. Oh, and cool. I think Charlotte, this is our, our first Charlotte ever. Thank you, Charlotte. We're going to call you Lottie just because we can. Um, <laughs> and because we're sure you like that. <laughs> probably, Yeah, probably not. But uh, Charlotte says, why is Latin the language of the Roman Catholic Church? And she also wants us to know that this was sent from her iPhone. Okay, cool. Well, let's, uh, <laughs> let's say this first. There are other... Churches, right, like Ukrainian, Melkite, Armenian, where Latin was never the language of their church. Correct, Chris? Correct. And so you have the notion that the Roman Catholic Church, which is one – what is the actual terminology for that, Chris? Yeah, yeah. That, no, that's a good, it's actually the Latin Church. Oh, okay. It's the Latin Church. And they're, in, within the Latin Church – So enough- I hope that answers your question. <laughs> and if you have a question for – <laughs> well, I t- it's not going to get any clearer, uh, so you may as well uh, turn the button off. Um, so in the Latin church, there's a number of rites. There's Roman rite and Ambrosian rite and Mas- Ma- Mozarabic rite. There used to be Gallican rite and Serum rite and things like that. And religious order so, rites. Yeah. So so the um, the Latin church is is, I don't know if it's the only one. I don't know if there's any Eastern churches that use Latin as an official language. But that's not really what the question was. But in the Latin church, the Latin is the official language. But anyway, right. back to you, Dennis. So what you should probably say, in some ways, it grows out of their origins. It grows out of where they're, where they're founded, so to speak. So the Armenians are very old, right? That's like one of the earliest churches. Um, and the Roman Rite 
founded later in Rome. But even then, they were using a lot of Greek, as if I remember right. So the Kyrie is still with us as, as Greek. And then somewhere along the line, the argument goes anyway by certain scholars that this was the living language of the Roman Empire. And so that became the living language of the liturgy. Yeah. Yeah. Dennis, Dennis, Jesse, don't you have like an online class on Latin and the liturgy or something? We just, yeah, we just launched that this month. Yeah. Well, and, maybe that has uh, the answer. So we did talk about that in the f first introduction hour. Mm -hmm. And then the last, so the other four hours are kind of just walking mm -hmm. through yeah. Latin, the, the Latin in the mass. And then yeah, sort of. yeah. But, you know, I think what Dennis was saying is initially, I think the majority of the liturgy in Rome was celebrated in Greek. Yes. And it wasn't until the third century, fourth century that it switched over to uh, Latin. And if I remember this correctly, it, it corresponded with there was a pope, pope somebody from Spain. And I think his, uh, uh, I don't know, secretary or assistant was St. Jerome. Yep. Uh, and he, it was the... About the time, I, if I remember this, that the, the liturgy switched from Greek into Latin was about the same time that Jerome was translating the scriptures into Latin as well. Um, and I think now if, if Father Michael Lang were uh, here with us, he'd say, but don't don't be fooled. It wasn't like switched over to, you know, vulgar Latin man on the street type of thing. It was still a very hieratic and uh, elevated uh, Latin language. Um, but in any case, so yeah, for... What, first three centuries in Greek, then it switches to Latin. You know, the question is, why is it the official language? I I think you're onto it, Dennis. It's just it's part of our part of the Latin church's DNA that this is how, how she speaks. Yep. And it's an interesting inculturation question. I'm looking at the entry on ecclesiastical Latin in the the older of the New Catholic encyclopedias, the one from the early 20th century. And it mentions that even most of the Christians in, in Rome were Greek speakers, even when they're in the Roman Empire, um, because, you know, there's traditional problems with Latin, uh, with, the, with Rome and the Christians, right? So it's not like all of a sudden there's a bunch of Christian, uh, Roman Christians. And uh, it makes the point that Greek, strangely enough, even in the center of Latin language, was the language of uh, the church. And it was the language for North African clerics, too. That was their sort of lingua franca, <laughs> was Greek. But what they're saying here is that the more, more and more Christian converts came, Latin was actually their language. And there was some pressure to translate into Latin so that the people would understand what was being said from the Greek into Latin. And then what she said here, it says that St. Jerome um, realizes that um, the earliest Christian writer in the Latin language, and he starts doing some of these things. So this is the argument made for the vernacular in the 20th century, that Latin was not the language sent down by God, but was in fact the living language of the early church. And so we could worship in the living language. Now that gets us all kinds of questions about whether or not the sign of unity among many cultures in Latin is useful uh, to do it or not. But nonetheless, I think you can say that was the early language, uh, not the earliest language of the church, but one of the early languages of the church. And then yeah. it becomes the Latin rite. Yeah. I, I do think uh, if uh, Charlotte wants further reading, uh, the first part of Liturgium Authenticum might say some, I'm sure it does. I don't know how satisfying it will be to to coming to an answer, but um, about the place of uh, Latin versus the vernacular languages. But anyway. But nonetheless, even by Vatican II, by discipline, Liturgium Authenticum says Latin is the language of the Latin rite, just like 
Armenian for the Armenians and, you know, Russian for the Russians. It's, uh, it's their particular historical patrimony. All right, Charlotte, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.